Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verse 1. Mark, chapter 8, verse 1, which you can find on page 843 of the Bibles provided. We are now on chapter 8, and it's been a while since I've given some general summary comments about the book, so I thought I'd just refresh your memory. The Gospel of Mark, if you're new to this study or new to the Bible, is one of four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it was written by a man named Mark, or John Mark, who was a disciple of Peter. And uh, much of the book is written in the perspective of an eyewitness, which is likely how Peter would have relayed the information, these stories about Jesus, to Mark. Mark wrote down this account for the church at Rome, which would have been largely Gentile, or at least a mixture of Gentile and Jews. And the entire book is basically written to show people who Jesus is and what he came to do, the person of Jesus and his work. The book focuses entirely on the fact that Jesus is the true and the only Son of God and how he came not to be served by others, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life as a ransom by going to the cross and acting as a a perfect sacrifice for our sins because he's the only one who lived a perfect life and never sinned. Three days later, he got up from the grave uh, pronouncing victory over sin and death so that all who repent of their sins and trust in him could be forgiven and have eternal life. That is what we refer to as the good news or the gospel. And uh, we continue to proclaim that news today. There are two peaks or climactic moments in the Gospel of Mark. The second one is at the very end, right as Jesus breathes his last. But the first one is halfway through the book. And we'll be covering that next week. So we are right at the end of the first half of the book. And that first peak is when Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. But this morning, that question of who is this man, who is this Jesus, still lingers over our passage today. And our passage this morning is almost like a summary of the first half of the book because it has all of the major characters that we've seen in the book so far. We have a large anonymous crowd. That's been a consistent theme throughout. We have the disciples who we expect to be at the forefront of understanding though they have fallen short a number of times. And then we have the Pharisees, the religious leaders, who have been Jesus' opponents throughout. Uh, I heard a pastor one time explain these three groups in the Gospel of Mark by calling the crowds, uh, the miscellaneous people, the misc, and the disciples he called the disc, and the Pharisees he called the tisk, because they shake their heads at Jesus. So I figured I'd pass that on to you, and you can remember in the Gospel of Mark, the misc, the disc, and the tisk. Well, let's read our passage together now and see these groups. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. 
And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Well, the text this week is fairly easy to break down, so my points are just going to follow the paragraph divisions in the ESV translation. You'll see in verses 1 through 10, Jesus feeds the crowd. In verses 11 through 13, he interacts with the Pharisees, and then in verses 14 through 21, he's in the boat with his disciples. Putting all three of these sections together, the main idea of the text is this, guard your hearts from unbelief, because we are prone to forget that Christ is sufficient in all circumstances. Guard your hearts from unbelief, because we are prone to forget that Christ is sufficient in all circumstances. I pray that in studying this text, you would be able to say with the Apostle Paul that whether facing plenty or hunger, abundance or need, you would look to Christ who strengthens you. So point one. The crowd. Some of you might be reading this and experiencing a little bit of deja vu, noticing the amount of similarities between this event and the mass feeding back in chapter 6, and rightfully so. It sounds so similar, in fact, that it's led some secular scholars to believe that there was really just one feeding and that Mark simply got confused or in the method of Transmitting the story, different details emerged until they basically became a retelling of the same event. And the amount of similarities make that seem like that could be true. They both take place in the wilderness, in the desolate place. They have the same ingredients, bread and fish. Jesus has compassion on the crowd in both stories. The disciples ask, how are we going to feed people in this desolate place in both stories? 
Jesus asks the disciples how much bread they have in both stories. In both stories, Jesus has the people sit down. He says a blessing in both. And both say that the people ate and were satisfied. And in both stories, there are baskets of leftovers. All of these details, in addition to the fact that the disciples act like this is the first time something like this has happened, has made people think that this is just the same event. But before we jump to that conclusion, we should acknowledge some of the differences of the story. And I would submit to you that the differences are harder to reconcile than the similarities. And there's a reason for that. I'm always willing to hear what secular scholars have to say and often look up what they say about a particular event. And what I find often is that they don't read their Bible as carefully as you or I might. The first major difference is the location of the event, which has been traced out by Mark as he's made his way in these Gentile regions in the last chapter and a half. And the location means not just that this is in a different place, but a different kind of ministry to a different group of people. Christians throughout church history have rightly assumed that this crowd would have been primarily Gentile. And another important distinction is the numbers of the bread and the people and the leftovers are different in both. So in the feeding of the 5,000, it was 5,000 men, five loaves and two fish with 12 baskets left over. And in this feeding, it is 4,000 with seven loaves, some sardines, which happens to be a specific species of fish common in Gentile areas of trade, with seven baskets left over. The context of the feeding is also slightly different. In the first feeding, the disciples were concerned, so they come to Jesus. And in this one, Jesus brings up the matter. By the way, Matthew also records two separate feedings, and his numbers of each story are the same. So while there are many similarities, the differences make it far more likely that this was a second event. And that's what makes verse 4 so hard to understand. There have been some really hard texts so far in the Gospel of Mark, I think it's fair to say. I have stumbled over the unpardonable sin, uh, demon exorcisms, and seemingly awkward statements made by Jesus. But verse 4 might be up there in one of the most confusing verses so far. I understand they're fishermen, right? I understand they may not be educated. I understand that it's easy for me reading this 2,000 years later to to uh, think that I would have known better, but how in the world did they not think to themselves, wait a minute, you've done this before. In fact, last time the crowd was bigger. Jesus, do the thing with the bread again. Didn't the disciples have some kind of deja vu as well? They even ask, how can one feed this people with bread here in this desolate place? It's almost verbatim. And if that wasn't enough, look at what Jesus says in response in verse 5. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? You would think that would ring a bell for them. And this is at the point where you're probably feeling pretty good about your understanding of who Jesus is in the Bible, right? Sometimes we feel like we don't know as much as we should, but then we read this and we're like, you know, I think I'm all right, actually. At least I'm not this clueless. But perhaps the most clear reason we know that this is a separate event is because the disciples clearly do remember both feedings in verses 19 and 20. 
Jesus gives them a pop quiz about each event and about the amount of bread that's left over. So it's not so much that the disciples are clueless because they hadn't witnessed this type of miracle already. It's that they are blinded by their unbelief. And we'll talk about that more in point three. There is one redeeming quality to the disciples' behavior in this passage, and that is that they didn't presume upon Jesus to perform miracles. They didn't expect it of him or test him like we'll see the Pharisees do in the next section. I think they were just honestly caught up in the moment and genuinely looked to Jesus for the answer. One commentator said that one thing that's commendable about the disciples is that they didn't treat Jesus like a miracle vending machine. Another difference between this story and the previous feeding is Jesus' insight to the needs of the crowd. In the previous feeding, he had compassion on them because he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. And in, this, and, and in that time, his response was to teach the crowd. But with this crowd, he's already been teaching them for three days. This crowd has been listening to him patiently and has already sacrificed much to be with him. They've traveled far to prioritize his teaching even over food. They are living out what it means to not live on bread alone but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Gentiles are doing this in the ways that Jews needed to be shown how. And so Jesus has compassion on them. The word used for compassion communicates the strongest emotion. Uh, I don't like to mention words because it doesn't really matter, but it happens to be one of my favorite Greek words. It's called splachnitamai because it's fun to say. And literally it means intestines, someone's insides. But the way we communicate this today is that he felt he had a feeling from the bottom of his heart. That's the compassion that Jesus has on these people. And he points out the reason to care for them in verse 3. The region, the area that they were in, the Decapolis, was large. We know that. And so people have traveled very far. And they're so starved and malnourished at this point that they would literally faint on the way home if they tried to go home. And so Jesus cares for them by providing food in the wilderness. The similarities between this event and the feeding of the 5,000 really drive home an important theological point. Because the fact that Jesus is multiplying bread in the wilderness, just like God did for Israel in Exodus 16, and then repeated as an authentic sign of Jesus in Mark 6, It's as if Jesus is showing that he is the bread of life, the creator God, not just for the Jews only, but also for the rest of the world. For all who come to him, he will satisfy their desires. They will eat and be satisfied. This story communicates that the children of God are not just ethnic Jews, but all who depend on God. And Jesus demonstrates that he is the creator God who will provide for them in faith. This miracle is a physical provision, but it's meant to communicate a spiritual one, that Christ himself is the bread of heaven. He is the word made flesh on which our souls feed and are satisfied by. That's point one, the crowd. Point two, the Pharisees. Let's talk about them for a minute. If you have missed... Uh, the previous seven chapters, whenever these guys show up, it's not usually a friendly interaction. 
These are the religious authorities of the day, well-educated scribes of the law. And there have been quite a few not-so-pleasant interactions between Jesus and his disciples. The first thing I want to show you in this passage is why they came in the first place. Look again at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. They came to argue. So this is not a group of people that came to try to understand Jesus or to have a conversation, to, to be convinced of anything or to submit to Jesus. They came directly with the intention of testing Jesus. And that's an important detail because it means that they're coming to Jesus with a level of suspicion already built up and perhaps even some intent to discredit him. That word testing, by the way, it shows up four times in the Gospel of Mark, never in a positive light. Three times it's spoken of the Pharisees and the other time of Satan. It says they were seeking from him a sign from heaven, which sounds a little funny to my ears because we've gone through every paragraph up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, and it just seems like in every paragraph or every other paragraph, Jesus is performing an amazing sign demonstrating the authority of heaven in all these situations. Yet they still seek one. It's not exactly clear what is meant by a sign from heaven. But what is clear is that they wanted God to reveal himself in a way that they thought was best, in a way that catered to their preferences. And you might just be thinking, what's so bad about that? Why didn't Jesus just rain down some fire right there on the spot, prove his point. Everyone would be happy. Maybe he would have made more Christians out of it and be on his way, right? Well, I don't think so. And I, but I understand that sentiment. And part of me wants to sympathize with the Pharisees as well. Because wouldn't it be amazing in your own life to witness something like this miraculous feeding in our lives today? If I'm honest, there was a time in my life where I wanted to see some kind of sign like this. Uh, In fact, a good friend of mine walked away from the church and away from Jesus because he just said sometimes it's too hard to believe in. It seems too far-fetched. Why couldn't God just write in the sky for everyone to know and make it clear? Why does it have to be so confusing? But is that really what's going on here? Are the Pharisees confused In any way. I don't think that they are. In fact, all of the times that they've shown up, they have not denied a single one of Christ's miracles. And it would have been absolutely foolish to do so if you think about it. Since everyone else saw the same things around them, Jesus had some serious crowds following him at that point. It would have discredited their own authority if they had any among those who were following Jesus. But no one ever denied the things that Jesus did. Neither did anyone in the book of Acts deny the things that God was doing early in church history, even Jesus' opponents. But they do disagree about what those signs mean. So what did Herod say about Jesus? Herod said he didn't deny that he was doing amazing things. He thought, oh, he must be John the Baptist. The Pharisees in chapter 3 didn't deny at all what Jesus was doing, but instead they credit it to demonic activity. And that's the problem with seeking a sign from heaven. It can always be explained away 
to something else. Not only that, but to require a sign from God effectively says that what God has already done is not enough for me. It puts us in the position of judging God. It puts us on a higher plane of authority because what we, what we think is what really matters. Friends, do you see the arrogance and the hard-heartedness of that way of thinking? Romans 1 says that God's divine nature and eternal power have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world so that men are without excuse. God has made his himself as creator clear through creation it's itself a sign and one that many go to great lengths to explain away but he's not just revealed himself generally through creation he has revealed himself specifically specially through his word we as God's creatures are not at all in the position to demand a sign from God as He, as the creator, doesn't have to act in accordance with his creation or our unbelief. Do you really think that God owes everybody a subjective, personalized sign? The problem is not with the signs or the lack thereof. The true problem is one of unbelief. So... If you're here this morning and you have wanted a sign or said that you would believe God if you only saw a clear sign, then ask yourself honestly if you would really believe in him if he gave you a sign and why a new sign would be any different from the ones you've already rejected that he has revealed to you in his word. Everyone wants to believe they're open-minded. Everyone wants to believe that they are rational and fair to an extent, but I think that if more people were honest, they would admit that it's not that they don't believe God exists, it's more that they don't want to believe that God exists, or they don't want to believe this God exists, right? And we're not, a, we're not against asking questions. If you have genuine questions, we want to hear them, and we want to provide any answers for you, of course. But there's a difference between seeking understanding and testing out of unbelief. And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. So how does Jesus respond to them? Well, look at verse 12. With a deep sigh, saddened at their unbelief, he says that there will be no sign given to this generation, which is a strange thing, like we talked about. Jesus has already performed many miracles. But I think there's two reasons Jesus says this. First, he's simply implying that he's not going to humor them by giving them a sign because he knows that uh, that's not going to change their unbelief. If they haven't believed already, nothing's going to change their mind. So he refused their request at that moment. But second, the language about testing God, this generation, and the context of a wilderness feeding perfectly reflects what could be called the most famous generation in the Bible. It's the generation of Exodus 16 and 17 because they were not allowed, famously, to enter into the promised land. This generation witnessed some of the greatest acts of God through the ten plagues and parting of the Red Sea as they were brought out of Egypt. And what happens as soon as they get into the wilderness? 
They grumble against the Lord for food. He provides bread from heaven, which says tastes like honey. And what do they do after that? As soon as they get thirsty, they grumble again. And they say, quote, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Can you imagine? They probably collected manna that morning and still grumbled in the afternoon. The Lord provides water from a rock, and then they name the place Massa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling because, quote, of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Jesus is connecting the unbelief of that generation and the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees questioning him, who saw the same exact sign as the one that Jesus just performed and still tested the Lord. Then Jesus did something terrifying. He left. It says he left them. The conversation came to an end. Now, there's two more times that the Pharisees are mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, but Jesus doesn't really interact with them. For the most part, he's, he's done with them for the rest of the book. It's a sobering reality that God sometimes gives people in judgment over to the hardness of their own hearts. God is more patient than you or I could ever be, but there are times in the Bible where God's patience runs out and people are completely given over to their sin. How do you know if God has already done that in your life? Dear friend, if your heart longs for the embrace of Christ, then his arms are still open wide to you. If you have never taken that step to completely give yourself over to faith in Christ, don't wait any longer. Strike while the iron is hot, because when it cools, your heart will be hardened against him. I want you to see that the unbelief of the Pharisees grieves the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and it grieves him just as much today as it did then. But if you're hearing this message, it's not too late to trust in Christ, and those who believe in him can be comforted to know that he is with them. Unbelief brings sorrow to God, but for those who trust in him, he will provide for all our needs abundantly, just like he does for this people in the wilderness. That's the disciples. Point three, verses 14 through 21. After perhaps a discouraging conversation with the Pharisees, Jesus gives his disciples a warning, which we can pretty much directly apply to our lives today in verse 15. He cautions them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I don't really know anyone who uses the word leaven except for people who have read the Bible. So let me just explain for a moment. Uh, When... COVID lockdowns first started happening, a lot of people developed new hobbies. I was not one of them who developed new hobbies. Should have taken advantage of that time, but I didn't. Uh, But one of the most popular across the entire country, for whatever reason, was baking bread. And so if you got yourself caught up in this hobby, you would know that you need to mix into your dough 
an appropriate amount of yeast if you want it to rise to a nice fluffy loaf of bread. Yeast is leaven. Leaven is what causes it to expand and change its structures uh, throughout the entire dough. And that's the reason Jesus gives this warning. He says to watch out for the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees, meaning something about them has the potential to completely change you. By the way, this isn't the only time that leaven is used in the Bible to illustrate or depict something that corrupts from the inside. 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Paul warns believers against boasting, saying a little leaven leavens the whole lump. He also says that about malice and evil a few verses later. And he uses it as an illustration for the Christian life, that we need to be cleansed of the old leaven with a new lump of sincerity and truth in Christ. He says that in the context of holding one another accountable in the church to preserve the witness of Christ to the world. Paul also equates leaven to false doctrine in Galatians 5, verse 9. And that's what Jesus is warning the disciples of in this passage. He's warning them of the unbelief that causes them to doubt his testimony. Unbelief that causes the Pharisees to explain away his miracles and causes them even to despise him. Unbelief grows and consumes the heart if you let it. In the book of Mark, the hostility of the Pharisees did not uh, look the same by the end as it did in the beginning. It gradually grows throughout the book until the moment on Jesus' trial, they shout to release the murderer Barabbas, and then they ask what to do of this innocent man Jesus, and they shout back, crucify him. But that hostility didn't happen overnight. I think just like stages of bread rising, unbelief can start very small and expand over time. So brothers and sisters, beware of letting unbelief gain a foothold into your heart. In my experience, most people don't make the decision to turn away from God or the church overnight or give themselves to some very serious sin out of the blue. Most of the time, it's the result of a long string of decisions that usually have unbelief behind them. The more you feed unbelief, the more it grows. Jesus is saying that unbelief corrupts, spoils, defiles, it's cancerous. It's very similar to saying bad company ruins good morals, but unbelief is like an internal bad company ruining the morals of your heart. Mark tells the disciples that Mark, Mark tells us that the disciples only brought a single loaf of bread in that first verse, verse 14, even though there were seven baskets of leftovers. And when Jesus gives them this warning, it flies over their heads like a jet plane. What do they start doing? They start discussing among themselves. Did the Pharisees do something to our bread? Wait a second, we don't have bread. Who was in charge of getting the bread? Did we have bread before? Does James have it? Maybe Levi took some of it. He's a tax collector after all. They're arguing about the fact that they have no bread. They think Jesus is criticizing them. And so Jesus speaks more directly in verses 17 and 18. He says, why are you discussing the fact that you have 
no bread. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? The disciples have two problems here. First, they're thinking too much about themselves so that they miss the entire point of Jesus' warning. They're so caught up thinking about the actual bread that they're unable to discern the spiritual matters at hand. And second, they seem to have forgotten that they're with the very person who has now provided bread for scores of people multiple times. Surely by this point of the story, you would not be concerned about how much bread you take on a trip with you. What's the weather going to be like this time around when we go on the sea? Doesn't matter. Jesus is with us. Should we bring food? No need. We have the bread of life. Those thoughts don't seem to be on their minds. Instead, they bicker with one another, and Jesus shows that spiritual blindness and deafness is a symptom of their unbelief. It's not a coincidence that this passage is like the meat to a miracle sandwich. So right before this passage, Jesus heals a deaf man. And then in the next passage after this one, he's going to heal a blind man. And in the middle, you have the disciples who have eyes but do not see, and they have ears but they do not hear. It's amazing. And make no mistake, this doesn't mean that if you just have blind faith, all of your questions will be answered, and you'll never have doubts again. Christianity has never been about just blind faith. The disciples have witnessed countless miracles up to this point. They have sat at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching for hours. Jesus pleads with them to understand, and it's that understanding that leads to faith. The two are not separate things. Remember what Jesus said after his teaching, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He said that after the parable of the soils in chapter 4. What does he say to them after he meets them in the middle of the water, walking on the water? Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Those words don't mean much if you don't know who's saying them and what he's capable of doing. So Jesus is telling them to use their eyes and to use their ears to discern that he is the way and the truth and the life. But notice Christ's patience with them in this moment. His rebuke is stern. But it's not the same as it was with the Pharisees. He goes on in the midst of their unbelief to teach them, to remind them about what he has done so far. He asks them about the two feeding miracles and if they remember how many baskets were left over in each. If I was Jesus, I might have thought these, these disciples were a lost cause at this point. Remember, we're right at the end of the book, so it's going to click for Peter next week, and everything will change. But for now, Christ continues to gently lead them along one step at a time, not leaving them behind. One pastor said, It's a blessing to remember that Jesus, our Master in heaven, despises none of his people. He goes on teaching them. And we can take great comfort in that. It is really easy to be shocked or even embarrassed at the disciples in stories like these, But the truth is, we're like this to a certain extent. Every finite creature possesses a level of ignorance. And we need Christ's gracious guidance every day. 
Jesus is sufficient in all circumstances. The disciples should have recognized the Creator God in front of them. They should have put the squabbling over the bread to rest. Perhaps in reminding the disciples about the baskets left over from these great feedings, he reminded them about the abundance of his provision and his compassion on those who come to him. I'd like to conclude with the compassion of Jesus to the multitude. About this compassion, Charles Spurgeon had this to say. Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, Spurgeon talking, saying this, Stop a moment. Prepare your ears for music. Jesus said, I have compassion on the multitude. Oh, the sweetness of that word. If Jesus spoke that of us while on earth, he equally says it now that he is exalted on high. For he has carried his tender human heart up to heaven with him. And out of his excellent glory, we may still hear him saying and answer to his people's prayers, I have compassion on the multitude. There is hope. That heart through which the spear was thrust and out of which there came blood and water is the fountain of hope to the human race. I have compassion on the multitude. So, brothers and sisters, guard your hearts from unbelief, not out of blind faith, but because of the compassion and the provision of Jesus, who is sufficient in all of life's circumstances. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are a providing God. You have provided for your people countless times, but most importantly, you have provided a way for us to be forgiven. In your love, you sent your son Jesus to be the bread of life. Heavenly Father, help us to guard ourselves from unbelief to the leaven of the Pharisees. We pray that we would remember Christ's compassion to us and that we would depend on him wholly and that we would say with the Apostle Paul, whether abundance or little, that Christ is sufficient and strengthens us for our time of need. We pray that you would do these things by the power of your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen.